Medical assistance in dying, or MAID, became legal in Canada in June 2016. It's available for those who meet specific criteria, that is, adults with intolerable suffering due to a serious and incurable illness, disease or disability, who are in an advanced state of irreversible decline and whose natural death has become reasonably foreseeable. For some Canadians, this has been a gift that allows them to have the kind of death they want. For others, including many healthcare providers, medically assisted death is unconscionable. Some have raised concerns that patients might request MAID solely because of poor access to palliative care, while others worry that access to MAID is inequitable. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with the authors of a research article that examined medically assisted deaths in Ontario from June 2016 to October 2018 to understand who's getting it, how, and under what circumstances. The article is published in CMAJ. Dr. Jennifer Gibson and Dr. James Downer are joining me today to discuss. I've reached Dr. Downer in Ottawa and Dr. Gibson in Toronto. Thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Happy to be here. Let's start off with um, telling our listeners a bit about who you are. Jennifer, you go first. Sure. I'm Sun Life Financial Chair in Bioethics and, and the Director of the Joint Centre for Bioethics at the University of Toronto and an Associate Professor in the Dalai School of Public Health. And I'm the Head of the Division of Palliative Care at the University of Ottawa and I'm also a Critical Care Physician at the Ottawa Hospital and a former student at the Joint Centre for Bioethics. So I'm glad you've joined us today to talk about this a really important paper. Can you tell me, Jennifer, why did you decide to do this study? When Medical assistance in dying, the legislation was introduced in Canada in 2016 as a result of a Supreme Court of Canada ruling, the Carter decision. Uh, one of the things that was clear was that we knew that there were there was legal arguments supporting the introduction of medical assistance in dying. There were ethical arguments supporting that. There seemed to be a lot of public interest amongst Canadians to have this introduced. Uh, and yet we didn't have any lived on the ground firsthand experience with providing MAID in Canada. So the decision was made to introduce the legislation, but there was a knowledge gap. And moreover, around this time, there were also uh, some concerns that were being raised um, that raised questions about what the potential impact and the negative impact made might have in Canada. So this combination of empirical questions, we were entering into a policy sphere that was going to have downstream practice implications, really, uh, really underlined how important it was that we learn from the, these early years so that that could serve to inform future policy work. So when, you know, observing this and also hearing at a number of tables, the urgency around better understanding what the practice actually looks like and what impact it was actually having on Canadians. I approached the office of the Ontario Chief Coroner uh, to inquire whether it might there, there might be an opportunity to learn from the early cases of medical assistance in dying in Ontario. And, and it's important to point out that in Ontario, uh, the coroner's office serves as the data steward for all made cases in Ontario. Um, and I received a very positive response to this. Yes, let us learn from this together. Um, so, you know, this part of what was propelling this was a knowledge gap, but there was also a sense of, uh, from personally, a sense of motivation as a researcher to do my part to support public accountability around this new policy, this new legislation, and this new practice. Which data did you analyze? The data we looked at came from, from two sources. One was data that had been collected by the Ontario Chief Coroner's Office about each medical assistance in dying case 
The other data that we looked at, too, was data that had been collected by ICES, which was administrative data that would give us insight into all deaths um, in Ontario. What we were seeking to do was to better understand, first of all, what could we learn from uh, those, those made cases um, in Ontario that we could gain access to insight from the coroner's data, but also to see how those deaths compared to all Ontario deaths during the same time, which was why we had the opportunity to have a look at ICES data um, in comparison. So if we look at the data that you've used that captured all people who received medical assistance in dying in Ontario, how confident are you that all of these cases were identified? So it's a good question. And of course, it's impossible to prove a negative. I, I, I can't prove to you that there's nobody who received MAID that isn't reflected in this uh, in this database. But I am very confident that the database is quite comprehensive. Uh, in Ontario, of course, across Canada, uh, MAID reporting is actually mandatory. And in Ontario, what that means is that you need to call the coroner as the data steward uh, in order to provide the coroner with information about the made case, you have to provide them with actual documentation and answer a number of questions. And uh, if the coroner's office needs to follow up, they will follow up with repeated phone calls or obtain whatever documentation they need to complete their files and, and do a proper assessment of the case. Um, it's important to recognize that the chance of there being some type of unreported made is low for a variety of reasons, and predominantly because it's actually quite uh, challenging to get the medications that you need to perform MAID. So these access to these medications is quite limited. Uh, propofol, for example, is a controlled substance. Rocuronium and propofol would only be available at a, not even all hospitals carry that. Uh, home care pharmacies only began carrying that after the legalization of MAID, and they would only provide these medications through MAID protocols because the doses, of course, are very, very high. This is not something that one could, could order uh, for another reason at the doses we're talking about here. Certainly within facilities, uh, there's going to be substantial awareness of each case. So in hospitals where, where roughly half of these procedures are performed, there would be nurses and pharmacists directly involved in, in preparing for the cases. And uh, many facilities and regions actually have clinical coordinators uh, that are in charge of following up on these cases, and they would be checking to make sure that follow-up calls did indeed take place. Uh, so I think it, I, on the basis of this, I'm very confident that this database is comprehensive. So MAID can be administered by a healthcare practitioner or self-administered. Do the same kinds of protocols apply with self-administered MAID? So in terms of the necessary assessments and all of the reporting requirements are the same for self-administration as for a clinician administration. So uh, yes, I would say that that's true. Um, for a variety of reasons, there is a strong preference among the population for clinician-administered MAID. So in Ontario, for example, during this reporting period, there was only one out of 2,241 cases of MAID uh, where the person self-administered. Uh, even obtaining the medication for self-administration is also very, very challenging to do, and it would not be something that most pharmacies would even carry. Uh, it would have to be ordered in and prepared. So again, self-administration, I would say there's no difference in the requirements for reporting, and I again think that, that the uh, database would be very comprehensive in terms of, of uh, containing all the cases that have happened during the study period. Okay, so going to the study... 
and your analysis. Which factors did you look at specifically? So we looked at a lot of demographic factors for both the cohort of people who received MAID at the time of their death, as well as the uh, cohort of all Ontarians who died over the same uh, period of time. Uh, so we looked at age, we looked at their income and marital status, their place of residence and their place of death. And we had fairly good information on uh, a lot of these factors because of uh, of data that's uh, available to us through the uh, through ICES. We also uh, collected a lot of information about clinical factors. So we, we collected data about the illness that either caused their death or qualified them for medical aid in dying. Um, and among the cohort of those who received MAID, we also uh, had data about the type of suffering, so physical, psychological, that they had. We had information about other specialists, like if, for example, a palliative care physician had been involved in their care, or if a palliative care physician or a psychiatrist had been consulted or acted as an assessor or the provider. Uh, for about half of the patients, uh, and a, a prognosis was estimated by the uh, providing physician uh, or was contained somewhere in the notes. Note that uh, you don't have to have a specific prognosis to qualify for made in Canada, but uh, but many physicians actually did estimate a prognosis in their notes, so we have that. Uh, we had information on the length of their reflection period, so uh, according to statute, uh, people are supposed to wait 10 days between their uh, written request and actually receiving made. That can be shortened um, uh, under, under a couple of circumstances, but we collected information on, on that reflection period. <clears throat> we also had a lot of information about the clinician uh, assessing or providing MAID, and I say clinician because it could be either a physician or a nurse practitioner in Ontario. And we also had information about uh, whether at the time of follow-up following a MAID procedure, uh, did the family of the patient or the provider uh, report some difficulties uh, in accessing MAID. So we had, in, we had quite a good amount of information about each case that we were able to use to compare. May I ask you about the cohorts that you compared? Is the the cohort of people who received medical assistance in dying a subset of the cohort of all deaths in Ontario? Yes, they are. So the ICES database does not at this moment indicate which individuals in Ontario received MAID and which did not. But because the number of people who receive MAID is so small in comparison to the population as a whole, it's just over 1%, that actually it's still a legitimate comparison to make. As a subset, you can compare to, to the population as a whole, and it would still be a valid analysis. What did you find out about people who died with medical assistance? So we found a number of things. First of all, we found that people who received medical assistance in dying uh, almost universally reported both physical and psychological suffering, and uh, they weren't forced to indicate which of the two was the primary reason for their request. But, um, you know, sort of 96% reported psychological suffering, 99% reported physical suffering. And what was interesting is that they were reporting that suffering despite the involvement of a palliative care team in more than three quarters of the patients. So um, that was one of the pieces of information we had from the coroner's database. And uh, that's really important because that number, that 75% number, uh, is really high. Um, so on average in Ontario, fewer than half of Ontarians before they die are followed by uh, a palliative care team by, by some description. So, so this is much, much higher than the average. 
But despite the involvement of palliative care, there was still a very high degree of suffering. Um, it tells us, of course, that uh, made requests are very unlikely as, as a result of that number to be driven by poor access to palliative care. We also found that people who received made were on average younger. They had uh, substantially higher income levels. They were substantially less likely to reside in an institution as their normal residence. And they were more likely to be married than people in the general population who died. This is important because it suggests that made requests are unlikely to be driven by social or economic vulnerability. Uh, we did a number of sub-analyses um, for uh, people who received MAIDs, and we found that the reflection period was shortened in about a quarter of cases, particularly uh, when that person happened to have a shorter prognosis of less than a month. We found that problems of access were not very commonly reported. Um, that was in about 6.6% of MAID cases, the family or the provider reported problems with access. Um, that's an interesting number. Uh, some people might think that's a low number. Others might think that's a high number. In fair I think we must recognize that uh, anybody who has to wait for care is going to find that frustrating. So even a low number is not something we should dismiss. But for that same reason, you probably, if you ask the same question about uh, other types of care, for example, were they frustrated by difficulties in accessing palliative care or difficulties in accessing home care, I imagine you would also find uh, a substantial number of people who expressed frustration about that. So you have to put that number in context. I think what's very reassuring is that um, these reports of difficulties with access to MAID were not more common among people who were followed by palliative care or by people who were seen by a psychiatric consultant, which suggests that when you involve these consultants in care in the way that's being done, um, it doesn't get perceived by family members as an obstacle to access. So that's, that's a reassuring piece of information. Do you have any sense of when in the sequence of illness people received palliative care? Because my reading of the findings seems to suggest that sometimes palliative care consultation happened around the time of the request of made. And is that significant or important? Well, so what we had in the data was two pieces of information. We had, we had information about whether the person was being followed by a palliative care team at the time of their request. And that was the case in about 74.4% of, of made recipients. Um, but then, of course, if you include cases where somebody might have been followed by palliative care beforehand, but then palliative care was no longer following them, or situations where palliative care only became involved after the request, either as a consultant or even as an, uh, an assessor or provider, that number climbed to about 77%. So uh, again, I would say on the whole, uh, palliative care involvement was occurring at the time of the request. And if I could just add to this, I think one of the things that is where it was really interesting for us about these findings was, on the one hand, yes, it was reassuring to be able to see that uh, that palliative care did seem to have an active role in support of patients and their families. Um, but on the other hand, it, it wasn't surprising. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that we found, if you look at other jurisdictions that have assisted dying legislation um, and policies and practices, they also find there's an active participation of palliative care as part of that support. Um, and indeed, in some of those jurisdictions as well, the introduction of assisted dying has actually precipitated increased social energy and economic investment or financial investment in palliative care. Um, and so, you know, there's the, the the sense that, in fact, it's not really a trade-off between made and palliative care. These, th these two may 
may work in tandem in a really supportive way for some individuals, which is the second observation that, um, that which sort of underlines why I'm not surprised by these findings in the end, is that um, in one of my roles, it was to co-chair um, an expert panel in the early days, immediately after the Carter decision, that laid out a set of recommendations and a framework which subsequently informed um, our current legislation in Canada. And we spoke to a number of stakeholder groups. Um, we received um, unsolicited emails from, from individuals across Canada. And one of the things that we heard was that for the patient and their families, uh, palliative care and MAID could be part of a continuum of supports for an individual at the end of their lives. That in many ways, it's not experienced by patients as a, as a choosing one over the other. There is a sense in which this is part of a, a continuum of a basket of supports that they may be able to have access to. And I think that, you know, the findings here, um, and certainly we're seeing more, more energy across Canada in terms of pan-Canadian collaboration around palliative care. Um, this ser serves to underline that it, it, it is possible to imagine um, into the future um, the coexistence of MAID and palliative care in the lives of individuals and providers, but this is the evidence that is serving to provide a, a more confidence that in, in fact, it's not just other jurisdictions that have been able to find some way of reconciling in practice uh, these two practices, but rather that this is playing out, it seems at least in the province of Ontario, playing out as complementary as opposed to um, at odds or as just totally distinct options. What about barriers to access? Do your findings suggest that some people find it exceptionally hard to access MAID? So I have to, before answering that question, I have to sort of put out a, a small disclaimer is that we only looked at people who actually received MAID. So we don't have the data of about people who requested MAID but never received it. So it's, it's hard for us to draw firm conclusions about access. Um, we know from some other jurisdictions that probably as many as 20% of the people who request MAID uh, end up not receiving it either because they are unable to complete the assessment process before they die or for other reasons there. They, they just don't manage to, they don't get to the completion of the assessment uh, of the MAID process. Um, so it's possible that those individuals uh, may have had a different experience than those that we studied in this cohort. Um, also have to say that the kinds of access concerns that might have been raised by a family member don't necessarily reflect the experience of the patient. So some, uh, in some cases, family members may have perceived a difficulty of access that actually the patient didn't didn't feel was was there, or, or vice versa, of course. I think it is safe to say that a substantial proportions of, on, of Ontarians who request MAID are not encountering barriers to access, and that's obviously very reassuring. Of course, we have all seen high-profile cases in the media of people who have experienced substantial de delays, either due to a lack of clarity about the eligibility criteria or for other reasons. Um, and really, uh, we are probably going to get a lot more information about access issues uh, uh, as the Health Canada reporting system has has changed uh, since October of 2018. We're now collecting data uh, at the level of the patient request. So patient requests are now uh, mandatory for being reported to Health Canada. And I think once we have a little more data collected at that level, we'll be able to tell a lot more about why people are requesting made and, and what uh, are the access issues as they come up. And I think our yeah, findings also underline um, some new questions that emerge. And, uh, and one, in, one that uh, strikes me, as, we, as we've seen in many other jurisdictions as well, 
assisted dying seems to be a, a service or practice that is accessed more frequently by individuals at, at higher income levels compared to other um, income quintiles. And so it does raise a question, at least for me, is to better understand what is what is the storyline underneath that uh, socioeconomic gradient that means that those at higher socioeconomic status um, are more likely to be accessing MAID? Now, does that answer the question that they're accessing it because they have better access to other sorts of supports to begin with? So they're able, better able to, if they wish it, to be able to take advantage of, of some of those others, some of the access points available to them with respect to medical assistance and dying. Is there something about Ontarians at the higher income levels that they share a set of worldviews or values or perspectives that might dispose them more so to um, seeing medical assistance in dying as an option versus those and other economic gradients? Um, or are there some active barriers that may be encountered by individuals um, at uh, middle and lower income brackets, which may raise different sorts of equity types questions that really call for some attention. So uh, in, in some ways, um, what we found here was not surprising given what we've seen in other jurisdictions, but it does um, sort of reframe what the equity questions might be. Um, and so it, it'll be terrific to be able to get better access and insight into the types of requests that are, are surfacing. Um, and that will be able to perhaps reveal some of some of this um, in a way that we've been unable to understand to this point. But I think what we found here, at least in terms of uh, sort of querying barriers to access for those individuals who have accessed it, it's reassuring to see the extent to which uh, the number of individuals who actually or the families or, or the providers who signaled that there were difficulties in access far less than we might have anticipated. So if I understand you correctly, are you saying that if we have better data on requests, we might be able to understand that some people in from lower socioeconomic backgrounds do request it, but then fail to be able to access it, um, or other answers like that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, those who make the request... Um, one can make a request and, and be found not to be eligible. We know that there are going to be a group of individuals like that. They're going to, we know that there are going to be some individuals who make the request, who are not found eligible, make the request again at the point where they are eligible and then may proceed, may proceed to um, access made. But it's really to understand, on the one hand, what the nature of the requests, under what conditions people are making such requests, but also under, even to understand at that moment in this patient's journey where they may be seeking to have a conversation about and then subsequently to make a request for MAID, are there some barriers at that point or are there some enablers at that point that mean that individuals are able to continue to have that conversation going forward? So again, this is really a, partly a question about um, our, our data, our results actually shed some light on, on some of these um, equity-related questions and, and so on, but it, it's, it's a snapshot, which I think um, we'll be able to further understand with increasing access to data, or just about the folks who are making the requests in the first place. What sort of study would best answer the question about barriers to accessing MAID, do you think? I don't think it's the easiest question to answer necessarily because a lot of it is going to be subjective. Um, what the 
patient or the family may perceive is going on might not necessarily be what is going on. Um, people may perceive that a team or a clinician has been resistant to their request or not acting on their request uh, for personal or moral reasons when in fact there was a genuine miscommunication that the, the clinician just genuinely didn't understand that that's what the patient was asking for. Uh, it's part of the problem of communication around end-of-life choices is that people sometimes use words that that uh, to them mean one thing and to somebody else means something else. I think that um, in terms of looking at uh, barriers to access, I think would involve a combination of, of the perspectives of the individuals uh, requesting MAID, the people providing the MAID, um, and of course, understanding uh, from the perspective of facilities, uh, are they able to find facilities and able to find uh, suitable accommodations for people um, who are in those facilities to receive MAID? Um, I, I think it's actually quite a multi-layered question. It's multi-layered um, and different. They will have a clinical, a patient, and a, and a, a family perspective on this. But it also suggests a set of methods that would exceed the boundaries of what we were able to do with the database study that would, to James's point, it is subjective. It would be to think about some qualitative research around this to better understand the meaning associated with the, the request for made. And though those sort of more um, richer circumstances around a, an individual patient that would shed light on the on what constitutes a barrier, what is perceived to be a barrier. Um, and um, and then and how, for example, how those barriers have been addressed. It's as, it is valuable to understand how people respond as it is to be able to document that there may be um, barriers. How do you think the findings of this study could influence Canadian policy around medical assistance in dying in the future? What we're really hoping is that this study will serve to fill that knowledge gap that I signaled at the earlier part of our interview about when we went into the process of in Canada of creating the legislation and then rolling this out as a set of policies and practices in Canada, we didn't know what, what the impact would be. We didn't have the experience locally within our own Canadian health system to be able to, in, to provide us with guidance at that particular time. We are in a better position now um, as a result of a study like this to be able to better understand what, what impact a MAID is having. Now, we're in the middle right now of a set of policy, potentially legislative changes um, related to our, our current made, federal MAID legislation. And some of the findings in particular that pertain to the concerns related to socioeconomic status or access to palliative care or the role and contribution of of a psychiatrist or um, a palliative care provider in, in, in these particular cases, I think what we're able to bring forward is on the one hand, it's a set of data that may help to inform deliberation about whether or not to expand the current legislation, but also some reassurance that our current practice over the, the, these early years is meeting the objects of the legislation as they were set out and hopefully will not only allay some of the concerns or fears associated with this that were speculative before they became empirically grounded, but also be able to provide reassurance to citizens that this is being taken seriously. So this data, we know that uh, there's interest to see these results to help inform current policy discussions. And we certainly welcome being able to provide this at this time. Yeah, if I can just pick up on that, I, you know, 
as this topic has come through the media and through public discourse uh, so often over the past five years, throughout these discussions, some of these common concerns get raised time and time again, that, that people are going to be requesting and receiving MAID due to a lack of access to palliative care, or second, that MAID is going to disproportionately affect people with socioeconomic vulnerabilities. And I think the, one of the big important findings of this study is that it clearly shows that neither of those concerns is borne out by the evidence. Now, let's be very clear what I'm saying here. There are issues of access to palliative care for sure, and there are a number of people with socioeconomic vulnerabilities who lack access to services that they need, um, and those are definite policy priorities that any government needs to put on the front burner and address. But whatever is driving requests for MAID, it is not related to either of those issues. It also suggests for those of us in the in the clinical and research community that MAID is being driven by a type of suffering that is not mitigated effectively by palliative care or even by, frankly, socioeconomic privileges or assets. Uh, of course, our data doesn't address the moral question of whether any amount of suffering can justify MAID. And there are many physicians, members of the public, who would never request MAID, would never provide MAID. And, and we recognize that and we have to respect that, right? Um, but it, maybe this study could also be helpful in, in helping us to all find a bit of common ground, that we really need to start to refocus effort on research that is aimed at improving our understanding and treatment of the suffering that leads to made requests. So uh, a lot has been said recently about uh, what we call existential suffering. So this is the type of suffering related to someone's loss of purpose or loss of ability to do the things they enjoy in life, as opposed to being sort of psychological suffering or physical suffering. It shows up in a lot of studies of made. And, and the sad thing is that we actually have no effective treatments for existential distress. Um, and going beyond MAID, uh, about you know, one, one and a half, maybe almost 2% of the population is, is receiving MAID. But almost 20% of people uh, experience existential suffering before they die, um, which means that most of the people who are experiencing existential suffering are not even asking about MAID. And we need to have something to offer them too. There are a number of promising therapies that we are currently trying to study at, at our own institution here in Ottawa. We are looking at use of transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, which has been used for decades to treat depression. We've never tried it in this population. Uh, there has been uh, also some exciting research recently about the use of psychedelic medications like psilocybin. We're going to be embarking on a study to look at that as well. And there may be other very promising therapies out there that to the degree to which we can start to maybe move on a little bit from this narrative um, about, you know, made simply being due to a lack of palliative care access or socioeconomic vulnerability, moving from that narrative onto the narrative of there is a gap here. There is a type of suffering that we are not able to properly uh, address. And we need to really make that a high level priority as a research and clinical community and address that. And that's something I think we can all get behind. Yeah, I think we can. Jennifer and James, thank you for joining me today and uh, speaking to our listeners on this really important topic. Thanks so much for having us. It's a it is a really important topic and the opportunity to be able to engage with your listeners and indeed with Canadians on this is, is really an honor and we're very grateful for this opportunity. Just want to echo that. Thank you. Dr. Jennifer Gibson is Sun Life Financial Chair in Bioethics and the Director of the Joint Centre for Bioethics at the University of Toronto, and she's also Associate Professor in the Dalalana School of Public Health. Dr. James Downar is Head of the Division of Palliative Care at the University of Ottawa and a Critical Care Physician at the Ottawa Hospital.
To read the research article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.